Hello there, and welcome to another episode of Over My Dead Pod. This is episode 11, and I am your host for today. My name is Kate Carter, and I am joined here by Kylie Colwell, Holly Spear, and we are your trio that makes up this podcast. So welcome to our crime comedy podcast. Today, we're going to be going over a pretty good episode. I'm really excited about this. I feel like you guys probably know this one. It is relevant to Arkansas. And so, as we know, Holly is from there. Kylie and I both live there for a little bit. So you guys might know this one. Before I start, I want to cite my sources, something I need to start doing a little bit more often. Today's story comes from True Crime Garage, which is an online podcast, but also a website that you can go to. My favorite murder podcast by Karen Kilgariff and Georgia Hardstark, Unsolved Mysteries, which is a great show, Murderpedia, and the Arkansas Gazette. So let's hop right in. August 22nd, 1987, two teenage friends, 16-year-old Don Henry and 17-year-old Kevin Ives, both from Bryant, Arkansas, which is a little suburb outside of Little Rock. So it's a small little town, and the boys are spending their weekend hanging out together. They've been friends for a little while, and they're basically normal teenage kids. They're popular boys. They're about to go into their senior year of high school, and it's the end of the summer, and school's about to begin. It's a Saturday when they're hanging out with some friends at a local hangout spot, which is conveniently a parking lot. The boys go back to Don's house around midnight to check in for their curfew. So they're spending the night at Don's house. Don's dad's name is Curtis. So Curtis is at the house. He checks in with the boys. And then the boys decide that they want to go back out and do some hunting in the woods. Very common, very normal. We know this happens all the time. Especially in these parts of Arkansas, it's very normal, but also remember it's the 1980s at this point. So the boys were going to go do this type of hunting that was called spotlighting. Personally, I didn't know what that was, so I had to look it up. Spotlighting is an illegal form of hunting where you shine a light into your prey's eyes to stun them, and then you shoot them. Apparently, it's very illegal with little sweet baby raccoons, so please don't kill any raccoons. The boys go out around 1230 in the morning. It's now Sunday morning. They have a flashlight and they have Don's 22 caliber shotgun. So they head to the woods where they've always grown up going to. Cut to the morning of Sunday, August 23rd, around 4.30 in the morning. A 75 car, six ton cargo train is on its regular night run from Texarkana to Little Rock. This train is over a mile long and is traveling speeds up to 50 miles per hour. And when the train starts to approach Bryant, an engineer named Stephen Schweyer notices something on the tracks. Now, a couple of other people also working on the train noticed stuff on the tracks, but at first they just thought it was an animal lying down. But in horror, they see two young boys lying motionless on the tracks. These boys are lying parallel with their heads on one rail and their bodies across the tracks and their feet towards the other rail. So it's basically they're just laying flat across the tracks, heads on one end, feet on the other. And it seems that the boys' lower body parts of their bodies are being covered by a light green tarp. Beside them was a rifle, also parallel, lying on the tracks. So this engineer, Stephen, he was a veteran train worker. He frantically blows the loud diesel horn as he pulls the emergency brake. But as we all know, emergency brakes on trains don't immediately stop the train. It's a progression of the train being stopped just because of the speeds that it's going at. So... At this point, the engineer, Stephen, knew there wasn't enough time on the tracks for the train to stop. So he's hoping the boys move. But the workers on the train now feel the impact as the train hits and proceeds to run over the bodies of the boys on the track, which the horror. 
Just imagine the workers. Engineer Steven radios the police from the train. And when the dispatcher asks if there's any injuries, Steven says, no, we have death. Once the train comes to a stop, the crew exits to view the carnage and to see what's going on. They've had an experience in hitting animals over their years working on trains, but none of them had ever hit a human before. So they knew to expect lots of gore, and they were surprised by what they found. So the crew were also hunters working on the train as well. They all knew that fresh kill, there was going to be bright red free-flowing blood. That's quite normal, not just animals, humans, everybody. But the blood from the boys was purple. It was thick. And it was oxidizing, indicating that the boys had already been dead for a period of time before they were hit by the train. By 4.40 a.m., the local and state police had arrived at the scene and began investigating. As the train crew explained to Saline County Sheriff deputies on the scene about the curious lack of blood present, and mentioned that as the train was approaching on the tracks screaming, having pulled the emergency brakes, the tracks were shaking, neither of the boys moved. They didn't flinch. They didn't move a muscle. And that's something that one would think would be human nature if a speeding train is coming towards you. Even if you intended to get run over, you know, there's been suicide by trains many, many times, but the people always move in some type of way to indicate the trains there, the trains coming. The scene was immediately recognized as a suicide or traffic accident by the sheriffs, despite the mention of what seemed to be foul play by the engineers. So this means that the scene wasn't properly secured, which we hate. Evidence wasn't properly collected, and in fact, the next train was waiting to go through and was allowed to do so, so it went through the scene, went through all of the evidence on the ground. Even the paramedics were skeptical of the handling of the scene as it was an accident, and so on their report, they actually wrote a note that stated the bodies of the boys suggested that they had been dead long before they were struck by the train. Now let's cut back to Don and Kevin. When they hadn't come home from that morning from shooting out in the woods, Don's father, Curtis, began to worry and notified Kevin's mother, Linda Ives. Eventually that morning, Curtis hears a rumor from a neighbor that two teenage boys had been shot and tied to the railroad tracks. This rumor was already going around town, but now remember that the train accident had only occurred at 4 a.m. It wasn't long before the police showed up to their house with the clothes that Don and Kevin were wearing that night, thus confirming the deaths of Don Henry and Kevin Ives. Shortly after the medical report was released by the state medical examiner, Dr. Fanny Malik. Now, I'm going to say this name a lot, so just get used to it. We're going to call him Dr. Malik. He's an Egyptian-born physician, and he rules the deaths as an accident. He, in his report, states that at the time of the accident, the boys were unconscious and in a deep sleep on the railroad tracks because they were under this psychedelic influence of THC. The examiner, Dr. Malik, went on to state that the boys had the same amount as 20 marijuana cigarettes in them. That's what we call joints, ladies and gentlemen. As a person who has and still does use the marijuana, I will go ahead and tell you that 20 joints in one night is not possible. Okay, people, even if the boys did smoke that night, I would go on to say that even if they were stoned out of their minds, one, they did not decide to lay down on a railroad track. Okay, two, they would have still made some type of movement when the train was coming. You don't get into a coma-like state off of THC. So the families of Don and Kevin, they're normal people, and they don't see that these reports are right. They stated the boys weren't big pot smokers and weren't bad kids. And although a dime bag was found in one of the pockets of the boys after the clothes were returned, the parents still stated that the boys had never gotten into trouble, especially with large amount of marijuana. 
The friends that had been with the boys earlier that night in the parking lot said that the boys had brought enough weed for maybe a joint or two. Plus, weird things started popping up that made the boys' family lose faith in the aptitude of Dr. Malik. First, of course, the whole town goes nuts over this incident. The local people went down to the train tracks to look around after the fact and get this. One of the family members of the boys went down on the tracks to look around and he found a shoe with a foot in it from one of the boys. And this was like two or three days after the accident. So obviously the police did not collect evidence as they should have, especially saying that it was an accident right off the bat. So the autopsy had already been done. And of course there was no mention of that freaking foot missing, which is crazy. So the cops told the train crew who has no stake whatsoever in what happened. That even though they had stated a green tarp was laying over the boys, the tarp must have been an optical illusion because the green tarp was never found and it never existed. So for five months after this, Kevin and Don's parents, who weren't letting go, they then tried to get the case reinvestigated and no one would listen to them. So they got fed up and they went to the media. And the plan works because the next day they do a press conference. And when the case is finally reopened, prosecutor Richard Garrett had the boys' bodies exhumed for another autopsy. And then this led to the grand jury, and it was led by an attorney named none other than Dan Harmon. He is a big name in Arkansas, let me just say that, from 1970s and 1990s. He's a friend of the prosecutors, of course, and had been in mix with the family from the very beginning. Now, he was an advocate for the boys' families and took their case on pro bono, which means free of charge. He requested that the judge, who was presiding over the grand jury, appoint him special prosecutor so that he could supervise the investigation over the death of the two boys. And now a new outside pathologist concludes that the boys had only smoked one to three marijuana cigarettes, aka joints, and had found that Don's Henry's shirt had tears on the back of it that were consistent with a sharp light object. So they find those markings on the shirt and on Don's body, and they match up. The injury and bruising on Kevin's face were consistent with being hit from the bottom of a rifle or another blunt object. So in grand jury testimony, the lead pathologist said that the boys, quote, were either incapacitated or knocked unconscious or even possibly killed before their bodies were placed on the tracks and the train ran over their bodies. So in 1988, the grand jury reversed the ruling of accidental death and ruled the deaths to be probable homicides. But even then, Dr. Malik said that he didn't believe any person laid a finger on the boys. He literally refused to believe it, even in court. Dr. Malik, he decided to not give over a bunch of evidence, and he started fighting the new ruling. So there's this thing about Dr. Malik. He had this controversial ruling during a case of a patient's death at a hospital. And this patient died at a hospital, and the nurse was facing legal issues, and he helped her in the case of a patient's death to help her avoid legal issues while she was already facing negligence and malpractice. So he helped her get off by writing these documents for her so she didn't get in any trouble. Virginia Kelly. Does that name sound familiar to either of you guys? Maybe, maybe not. But during this time, Virginia Kelly was the mother of no other than Governor of Arkansas, Bill Clinton. Apparently, Bill Clinton's mother, Virginia, was accused of malpractice not only once, but twice. Dr. Malik reversed both of these charges against Bill Clinton's mom, as he was the governor of Arkansas. Okay, so the boys on the track could have been Dr. Malik's first mess up that he had ruled incorrectly, but over his career, his rulings became problematic 
in more than 20 additional deaths. There were multiple instances showing that Dr. Malik had testified in criminal cases, that his rulings were reversed by juries and outside pathologists challenging his findings. There was one case from 1985 that a man was shot dead in his yard, and Dr. Malik ruled the death a suicide, but this man had been shot five times in his chest. Another oh. example <laughs> is that a man was found dead in his home. Dr. Malik attributed his death to an ulcer, but the man had been decapitated. It's a big ulcer. Yeah. Dr. Malik was questioned about this, and he said that the man had been sitting dead in his house for a while, and that maybe the dog chewed through his neck. So even though it was a clean slice, ridiculous, the families tried to argue with Dr. Malik initially about how he can think the boy's deaths were an accident, and they tried to reason with him. And Dr. Malik got pissed off and decided in court to pull out autopsy photos of the sons. He tried to show the families these photos, and one of the police officers had to shut it down and take him out of the courthouse. So when Governor Bill Clinton was asked to comment on Dr. Malik's actions, he praised his work and said that the mistakes came from being overworked and underpaid. Dr. Malik obviously had messed up the case with Don and Kevin, but two months after the grand jury ruling about the probable murder, Clinton sent a request to raise Dr. Malik's salary by 41.7%. At a hearing about this pay raise two months later, Ms. Ives, Kevin's mother, formed an organization to stop this from happening. This group was called Victims of Malik's Incredible Testimony. The acronym? Vomit. Okay, so there's a police report filed seven months after the death of Kevin and Don, and there's it reads a quote. It says, Confidential informant states that she has been told that the area that the two boys died in is a drop zone for dope. In the years that surrounded the death of the boys, residents near the tiny municipal airport two hours from Bryant, Arkansas, called Mena. The residents had complained of a low-riding aircraft at night. It turns out that Mena was a drug-running hub in the 1980s and 90s. Small, small airport. And there was a man named Barry Seal. Okay? So Barry Seal, you guys can all Google him later, but there are apparently lots of documentaries on him. I think Tom Cruise plays him in a movie about a documentary of his life. So you should look up this name, Barry Seal. So Barry was a cocaine smuggling kingpin that operated out of the Mena port. At the point of the two boys' death, Barry Seal had already been assassinated by Colombians, okay? So he's not involved in this. But Barry was originally hired by the DEA to fly small planes over Central America and taking photos of rebels. So the DEA was like, go take these pictures, prove to us that the drug smuggling cartel stuff is going on. But he eventually went to become a double agent. And he began working with the cartel and smuggling the drugs back into the U.S. Well, then Barry went on to become a triple agent, and he then ratted on the cartel. So the drugs are brought into these small municipal airports, and one of them was Mina. But local authorities weren't in on the operations. So local authorities had no idea, but the DEA and the FBI knew, which is kind of crazy. The local operations started to notice that there were suspicious activities and they started to put up lights all over the municipal airport and made it so it wasn't so easy for people just to land in the middle of the night. Instead of landing at the airport, they started dropping small parcels of drugs off across the state and surrounding states from planes. Well, one of these drop sites was supposedly a clearing near the tracks where Don and Kevin were found. In the years following the murders, years, of Don and Kevin, a few different eyewitnesses started to come forward. 
And when combined, their stories tell a big story of what happened that night. The first person to come forward was a kid named Tommy Nighthouse. At the time of the murders, was only 12 years old. And he said that the night of the murders, he was in the woods by the tracks and had spotted a group of men on the tracks. And while he was hiding in the bushes with his friends, Tommy could see two boys approaching the men along the tracks. And when Kevin and Don don't see the men's on the tracks, they hesitate and stop and try to turn around. But what they don't know is that the men are watching them the whole time and they're called out by the men and have to walk towards them. So these boys hesitated, according to Tommy, and then a shot is fired. They don't know where the shot came from, but whatever happens, Don and Kevin take off. But Tommy recognizes one of these men on the track because his mom's dating that man. And that man is prosecutor Dan Harmon. This was the man that was in charge of the original grand jury. After coming forward, Tommy passes multiple polygraph tests. He's put into protective custody. He gives video statements of what he witnessed the night of Don and Kevin's murders. So he's a reliable witness. But the story goes on. And based off a witness testimony, the boys also ran into their friend named Keith Conley. Keith gave them a lift on his motorcycle to the grocery store to the payphone that was located there. The next part of the story is given by a witness named Ronnie Goodwin. He told state police that he was driving by when he saw the two boys in the parking lot of the grocery store with Keith. Now, he sees these boys in the grocery store parking lot and then sees two officers show up in their unmarked cop car. Ronnie drives past and pulls into another lot. So he's now just watching this all unfold. He then witnesses these two officers beating two boys. He includes that one of the officers hits one of the boys with the butt end of a rifle in the face and throws them in the back of the cruiser. Eventually, there are three witnesses that come forward to cooperate the grocery store story. And two of the witnesses are murdered when they're called to testify about this in the grand jury hearing. The next witness to come forward is a woman named Charlene Wilson. Now, Charlene gave secret testimony to the federal investigation and did a video confession. She then did a four-page confession letter, and she signed it, and this was all in 1993. So at the time of the boys on the track murders, Charlene was dating prosecutor Dan Harmon. She claimed that she had been on the track that night with Dan and another man named Keith. Keith McCaskill was known to be a meth dealer and a police informant. There were also two other cops there. And these people, according to Charlene, the witness, were all there looking for the drug job that had been dropped off that Saturday morning, nighttime. So when the cops are there to be muscle for this drug drop, Charlene tells investigators that before this drop had occurred, some of the drug bags had gone missing within this year. So they're obviously stacking up on authority and trying to get more people out there to see what's going on with the missing drugs. They assumed that local kids had grabbed the drugs and ran. So, of course, you know, prosecutor Dan Harmon's pissed off and he decides to bring some of his men with him to the night that the drop was going to happen and make sure the drugs don't get stolen. All of this occurs at the exact same time Don and Kevin show up on the tracks. Charlene was supposed to do the pickup that night, but uh, she was strung out on cocaine and meth. So she was just living her high life that night in the van, on the tracks, not really knowing what's going on, but she sees that Dan's walking up to where the drop's supposed to be. And they told Charlene to wait in the car while they go pick it up. She waits in the car until she sees that kid in the bushes, Tommy. Tommy was running from the apparent gunshots he had heard. Charlene now gets out of the car and sees that her men had intercepted two boys at the drop site. 
A few boys managed to get away, but Don and Kevin had been captured and were being interrogated by the men as they laid face down on the train tracks. They had their hands tied behind their backs. Eventually, the boys are beaten, kicked, and then finally executed. The group of men was led by prosecutor Dan Harmon and then loaded the rest of the drug drop into their cars, and they wrapped Don and Kevin up with a tarp that was in Dan Harmon's car. See where the green tarp comes in. And they put that in the truck of the car. So they move up the track a little bit with the boys' bodies in the back, and they take out the bodies and lay them on the track. Now, according to Charlene, she freaked out, started running away from the scene. Remember, she's methed out at this point. On a side note, Charlene was also the ex-girlfriend of a convicted drug felon. And his name was Roger Clinton, the half-brother of Bill Clinton. So there's this new grand jury, and Prosecutor Dan Harmon uses this grand jury to figure out like who's told on him, basically. He's in charge of this grand jury, and he's calling all these people in and looking at all these secret documents to see what they had said about him, which he cannot do this, okay? Abuse of power. The purpose was for him to discredit these witnesses so that if for some reason Don ever got arrested, he could say that it was retaliation. So let's go back to Keith McCastle for a second. Keith was there the night of the drug job and the deaths. And before the grand jury was called, he was stabbed to death in his driveway before he could testify. Now, was that ever solved? I'm going to just move on. Okay. (laughs) Keith Conley, the boy on the motorcycle who was 12 at the time of the incident. He dies in a mysterious motorcycle crash just a few months after their deaths. See, now, Keith had refused to tell authorities what he had heard or saw, but only told his father the cops did it. So when Keith died, they said it had been a motorcycle crash, and that was it, okay? His throat had been slashed before the crash, but because of his body being immediately cremated, there was no autopsy done, and there was no way to prove that it was anything but a motorcycle crash. It was it was an ulcer, actually. <laughs> it was an ulcer. The grand jury say that Don and Kevin had been murdered, and it was a homicide. Eventually, Prosecutor Dan Harmon finds out about his girlfriend's testimony, you know, Charlene. And in 1992, Prosecutor Dan sets her up and personally busts her for a small drug charge and weapon charge. While he goes to arrest her personally, he prosecutes the case against her and then offers her a plea bargain of 116 years. This is her first arrest, by the way. What a deal. She says no way and ends up getting sentenced to 31 years in jail. So at this point right now, it's 2022. I'm not sure if she's still in jail. If you go to look her up, there's minimal details about where she is or if she ever was released. So when anyone of authority tries to look into this case, there was a woman named Jean Duffy, and she was the former head of Arkansas Drug Task Force. She gets appointed to start working in this town, and she wants to uncover the cover-up of the boy's death. Prosecutor Dan Harmon starts to lose his shit. And so he goes on the attack and he leaves a whole smear campaign against Jean. He accuses her of embezzling funds and child abuse. And the newspapers and journalists just take it and run with it. So anything Prosecutor Dan Harmon says, they just believe it as true and take it. When Dan tries to subpoena Jean for everything that she may have against him, including the secret informants, Jean starts to fear for her life because she doesn't want to turn things over, but she also doesn't want to get killed. She goes into hiding, and after a 10-year disappearance, she is found being a school teacher in Texas. So she just peaced out. Now, in 1996, 
Dan Harmon finally gets caught. He is convicted of racketeering, conspiracy, extortion, and drug possession. He gets 10 years and is only released at nine. And then he gets arrested again for drug charges in 2010. I can't tell right now, but we believe he is still in prison. So later on, one of the police officers that apparently was on the tracks that night when Don and Kevin died, his name was Jake Campbell. Okay. One of the police officers. Turns out he and his wife both get arrested on multiple drug charges and are sentenced to decades long in terms of jail. Now, the families of Kevin and Don are still not receiving any cooperation from the Saline County Sheriff, which includes the new head of the department, Rodney Wright. Funny enough, Rodney is the nephew of Dan Harmon. Kind of full circle here in this story. As recent as 2016, Linda Ives, Kevin's mom, has filed multiple suits against government agencies for refusing to answer her Freedom of Information Act. She's put in many requests for it and has always been denied. And she is suing them for withholding information in regards to her son's death. The government responded to her suit by asking the courts to dismiss the suits because it's an ongoing investigation. But Linda Ives says it's not a political issue with her, but that the Arkansas political machine reached into their lives, destroyed their families, and has never helped since. So with all of that being said, you guys, today is November 2022, and no one to this date has been arrested for Don or Kevin's murders. And that is literally the end of the story of the boys on the track. Now, do you guys have anything to say before I come in with two side notes? Dan Harmon's looking a little suspicious to me. I don't want to get arrested, but maybe the former president's family who was once the governor of Arkansas, I won't name any names. No comment. Seems like everybody's related around here. Well, I'll just go on and say some stuff for you guys, okay? Okay. All right. So over 30 years after the murder of Kevin Ives and Don Henry, a former professional wrestler has come forward and claims he witnessed the deaths. In a video posted on January 23rd, 2018, a former professional wrestler named Billy Jack Haynes says he witnessed the murders on that Sunday, August 23rd, 1987 in Arkansas. He states, I come with no mask and I come with no hidden voice. I come to you straight face to face because this is reality, man. Now, Haynes said that he was compelled to come forward after the death of Seth Rich, which is a whole nother story. That was an employee at the Democratic National Committee. So several conspiracy theorists online have tried to connect Seth Rich's death to the boys on the track because it's all related to what we will call the Clinton body count conspiracy theory. Now, this former wrestler went on to explain that he used to be a drug trafficker and a hired enforcer during the 80s, and he was induced to a politician drug dealer from Arkansas. Haynes then alleges that this unnamed politician asked him to kill David Kennedy, the son of Robert F. Kennedy, in 1984. In August of 1987, quote, I was contacted by the Arkansas criminal politician and was asked if I could provide muscle at an Arkansas drug stop. The criminal politician suspected that drug money drops were being stolen. And while conducting security during that alleged drug purchase, Haynes went on to claim that he witnessed the murders of Don and Kevin. Haynes also claimed that the politician believed police officers were involved in the theft of the drug money and not teenage boys. Hayes says that the teens were murdered by people working for the same criminal politician. This professional wrestler went on and met Kevin Ives' mom, Linda, in 2016 and gave her the names of everybody and provided everything to a private investigator. And so he put his story out there in 2018. Unfortunately, 
Kevin Ives' mom, Linda, passed away in 2019 from cancer. So she is no longer around, but I believe her court records and everything that she was doing for this case are still available online. Now, my last little thing is what is called the Clinton body count. So the Clinton body count is a conspiracy theory asserting that the former U.S. president, Bill Clinton, and his wife, Hillary Clinton, have secretly had all of their political opponents murdered, totaling to as many as 50 people or more. Many parts of it have been advanced by newspapers, congresswomen like Marjorie Taylor Greene and others. But these allegations have been circulating at least since the 1990s. When a film called The Clinton Chronicles accused of Bill Clinton of multiple crimes, including a few murders. So this conspiracy theory has been discredited. They point to death records. They say that there is a large circle of associates when a president is around and likely to have. And so it's just coincidental that all of these people have died in mysterious ways around the Clinton. One big person that comes to mind immediately is Epstein. I'm not going to get into that now, but there is a big conspiracy on that one. So go look it up if you want. But according to history and debunking first published in 1998, the body count meme originated in 1993 in Indianapolis by lawyers. They titled it Clinton body count and they said 34 or more people had been connected to the Clintons who had all died mysteriously. That is the two slight off topic, slight on topic conversations I wanted to have post my story with some big names, some big government names. We don't need to go into all the depths of it because obviously we don't want to get sued or get in trouble or, you know, my FBI Murdered. agents listening. I will say that the Clinton body count is a conspiracy theory. It is up to you whether or not you believe in it or not. I'm saying Donald Trump is going to have a field day with this episode. He's going to love it. I mean, we could just do a podcast on Dr. Malik and all of his cases he's gotten wrong. I was listening to a podcast just the other day, actually, that was talking about how powerful a medical examiner actually is if they rule yes. something a suicide or whatever. Yeah. And they can just mm-hmm. kind of do what they will with the case after that. I recently found out that like medical examiners, they're supposed to, you know, be independent from police and prosecution, all that stuff. But at least in Florida here, the medical examiner's board is like under the umbrella of the Justice Department. It's very unfortunate for their families. And I hope that someday this will not be a cold case and it will be solved. But until then, we may not even have any witnesses left because they keep being killed. That is the case of the boys on the track with your host, Kate Carter. I'm Kylie Colwell. And I'm Holly Spear. Okay, so I'm going to jump right in. I have 1.5 cases to talk about. And the reason that is, is because the first one I'm going to talk about today, I have no details on. Okay. This is just the news line that hit this morning. Thought I would update you guys all. So in 2020, Megan the Stallion was shot in the foot by Tory Lanes, and they have all of this on video. Holly, do you not know about this? No, I didn't what? know that. What? Okay. We needed to send you the video because there's full video. So It was early 2020. There's a video. It's like a drone almost and a police camera. And you just see police yelling at Megan the Stallion. You can definitely tell it's her to exit and escalate and to walk backwards. And the whole time she's saying like, I've been shot in my foot. I've been shot in my foot. And the other person in the car was Tory Lanez, the rapper. Now, Tory Lanez, for all of those people that don't know, he has a federal background. He has been charged in federal crimes before. And so in no circumstances is he supposed to own or possess a firearm. So as of today, November 28, 2022, 
the trial has started the jury trial for this case. So Megan, the stallion is coming after Tory lanes for this accident that happened or so-called accident. Um, and we will keep you guys updated, but at the moment, Tory lanes is denying all allegations. He is saying, no, I didn't do this. So we will keep you updated. And then my second story for today was that I believe last year there was in 2021 or 2020, I can't remember the year exactly. There were 10 people killed in a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, and it was all African-American people. And so this was a racist shooting that happened in May of 2020. State charges were brought against the shooter. He is alive. He's okay, unfortunately. And he was 18-year-old Peyton Grendon of Conklin, New York. He pleaded not guilty to all of the state charges and the federal charges, but he was arrested shortly after the shooting. He actually surrendered himself to police. He was indicted by a grand jury. So there's, I think there's about 42 counts against him for different things. But like I said, 10 people were killed. I think three to five were injured. And so the big thing that happened today in this case is that the, he's now 19 years old. The 19 year old gunman is going to be sentenced to life in prison. He is pled guilty to murder and most likely because of a plea deal, he will face life in prison um, without the possibility of parole instead of being sentenced to death. So that is my updates for today. Ladies, do you guys have any? One from your backyard of Jupiter. Remember Austin Haruf, the Florida State rat boy who killed two random people and ate their bodies in the driveway during the like the bath salt craze? Austin, a little backstory. He apparently was acting a little weird a couple days beforehand. Like his mom found him drinking cooking oil. He was telling people that he was a dog, stuff like that. That night, him and his family were out at dinner. He left the restaurant. And then while walking home, he stumbled upon John Stevens III and his wife, Michelle Mishkan, where he murdered them. And cops arrived. They found him eating their bodies and he still had flesh in their teeth. Can I make a side note really quick? Yeah. So he was walking by their houses. This is caught on ring doorbells too. You can look up the video. And their garage was open and the husband was inside of the garage and the wife was inside the house. And so he just entered the garage from their driveway. Super scary video and starts attacking the guy. And then his wife came out to him eating his face. Completely random. But today a judge has determined that he is not guilty by reason of insanity and he will spend the rest of his life in a psychiatric hospital. And apparently the family of the victims are pissed. I know that in many articles I've read, he has prior drug issues, but stuff as simple as small possession, you know, like nothing crazy, but you never know what stuff is mixed with or what you're taking. So let's just be clear. I don't really have that much, but I think three or four new episodes of Unsolved Mysteries came out the other day. Yeah, this is the same season, but they just released like another bunch of episodes i know so, what are we doing tonight i know i watched one of them and then i was like so interested in it i watched a podcast on it i won't ruin it for you i don't know if you've ever heard about the guy that went boating and he was like apparently very good at boating like he could like fix his motor he could like do all the things but anyway his boat was found without him in it no evidence they fingerprinted it and looked for biological evidence like nothing about him being killed another medical examiner ruled his death as i think it was a suicide i i was just like it was a suicide (laughs) yeah they ruled it a suicide obviously not a suicide that's not a spoiler because there's a lot more details super good so i'd recommend starting with that one 
Another thing that I just cannot let go of, I know everybody's talking about it right now. It doesn't really need more publicity, but the freaking college student murders, I can't quit talking about it. I can't quit looking at things and none of the updates are seen police say, but it's all, it's on TikTok. Um, apparently three miles down the road from where the girls and the boy were murdered, a couple let their dog out and they found their dog later on and it had been skinned and filleted. <gasps> filleted? Filleted is the word that they used. Yeah. And they called the police and cause they were like, we don't think an animal did this. And they confirmed like it was not an animal that had done that. I think that that's a fact. Holly, I'm glad you're keeping up with this case because I've just been overwhelmed with it. Me too. Every time I look at it, there's like 50 million new things and then 50 million things that have been like debunked. Right. Everything I see keeps getting debunked. So I'm like, okay, I'm just going to wait and once a week look up the case. Yeah. Once once a week, I'm going to listen to Holly as our correspondent. Yep. Yep. Keep us updated. I'm I'm reading the TikTok comments. I'm thinking somebody in here like knows them. So... To end our crime time this week, I do want to let everybody know that by the time this episode does come out, so if you're already listening to us right now, this is present, this is happening, everyone needs to go watch on Peacock, comes out Tuesday the 29th, is the new Casey Anthony documentary called Casey Anthony, Where the Truth Lies. And I'm not going to give too much spoilers about it. The girls and I talked about it last week off of the podcast, and there's going to be some juicy things in here. We already have opinions of this case. So again, if you're listening to this, the show has already been out for a week now. So go ahead and watch it. Let us know what you think. We're very interested. Casey Anthony is a big case. And I actually today watched the there was another documentary that was just based off of For Her Kid, and it's also on Peacock. And I was binging it today so that I could prep for the new documentary tomorrow because I want to have all my stuff together. All right, ladies. Well, this is the end of Over My Dead Pod. Thank you, everybody, for listening to today's episode. Again, I'm Kate Carter. I'm Kylie Colwell. And I'm Holly Spear. And we'll see you next week. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.